This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Bedside Podcast. I hope everybody had a wonderful Lion's Gate. This is a really big time for manifestation. And it's funny because I actually had no idea what Lion's Gate was until this year. Somehow it just came up on every social feed of mine. It seemed to be a topic everyone was talking about in my sphere. And it's also particularly because I'm in LA and Hysterically enough, I think when you come to LA, you inevitably get more roped into the manifestation and astrology. But I was doing some manifesting the other day, meditating, journaling, really grounding myself and tapping into the energy of this time. And this really clear message came through to me, which was that right now is a really vital time to step into your power. It was something that gave me such chills and it was so wild because I ended up having this conversation with our guest today around the same topic and seeing the through lines and connections just really validated this theme. So today I'm talking with Aman Hariri Kia, who is a writer, editor, and author born and based in New York City. She's a nationally acclaimed journalist covering sex, relationships, ideas identity and adolescence, and we're talking all about her debut novel, A Hundred Other Girls. So what's really cool about this conversation with Amon is that we straddled the through lines between her fictional writing while also chatting about the parallels between Amon's own life and own coming of age, and it really sparked this interesting dialogue around power dynamics. Amon just gave such beautiful advice to those who are eager to step into their power and what that means and how we can go about doing so. This was just such a striking conversation and I cannot wait for you to listen. So with that said, please welcome Amon to the Bedside Podcast. Aman, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with Bedside. It's such a full circle moment because we were talking off air about like basically kind of our worlds colliding and it's so exciting to just like meet other people in the space. And then I was so excited to see that you had a book out. So we're very happy to have you here today. Oh my gosh. Well, the feeling is beyond mutual. So before we get into it, I'd really love for you to take a quick moment just to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are, your cultural background and upbringing. I just kind of would love to set the foundation. Sure. My name is Iman Rikia. 
I'm a writer, editor, and author. I was born and raised in New York City, but I am a Middle Eastern American first gen. My work has been published in Vogue, Teen Vogue, Cosmo, Nylon. My debut novel, A Hundred Other Girls, just came out two weeks ago today. It is sort of a 2022 update on the world of the Devil Wears Prada through a diverse and inclusive lens. And if you want to hear about anything else, I'm 100% accessible and willing to answer your questions over social media and email. <laughs> I love it. And you know what I think is so cool? And we'll get into your book in, in a little while. But I think what's really cool about our specific age is that when the Devil Wears product came out, it was such a pivotal moment and it was such a peak of like editorial being kind of that thing we all really were striving for. And so I love that it's your rendition of what that kind of looks like today. And honestly, this kind of segues me into my next question because you got your start working editorial. You were kind of at Teen Vogue during that super pivotal cultural moment when that big shift around their dialogue and their brand changed. So I'd really love to hear what brought you into the scene. No, so I really had the honor of working for Teen Vogue when it was transitioning from more of a fashion magazine for, you know, elite teenagers to a more accessible culture and political identity-based magazine for Gen Z. And um, this was during sort of like a leadership change and the development and introduction of the digital online site. So think like, post-Trump selection, um, just more of a discussion of being politically active as a young person, also taking maybe more authority over your sexuality and your body and, you know, starting a dialogue with your peers um, about owning your identity. I had just graduated from college. This was my first job and I worked as an assistant and I really, in many ways, will always be the most challenging job I've ever had, but also the most rewarding in that it set up my career. It introduced me to a lot of really talented people. I think sometimes the most important jobs at brands or companies are administrative because you get to learn sort of the mechanics of how a brand operates and how a company functions. And you learn how integral everyone's roles are, how every single team, how they contribute to the overall mission. I dip my toes into every bucket. I was in a lot of important rooms. I was overhearing a lot of important conversations. And at that time, I was there when the print magazine folded and the brand became digital only. And everyone would ask me, you know, when that happened, were you shocked that, you know, Teen Vogue folded at the height of its popularity? You know, the year before it had received like the Webby for most, you know, influential brands. So to go from being lauded for being so important in the year 2016 to folding in the year 2017, I mean, it was like people were really, really caught off guard. I think from sort of the rubbles of that brand, the um, the confusion, 
the controversy, um, sort of like the lack of cohesion between the way that people perceived Teen Vogue and what we saw behind the scenes. That's when the idea for 100 Other Girls began percolating in my brain. But the truth is, this book really wasn't only inspired by my time at Teen Vogue. It's been inspired by every single job I've had in media, from sort of intern and assistant to senior editor, site lead, and also, you know, industry gossip, news stories that broke while I was writing. Because the truth is, sometimes you know, what happens in real life is even stranger and crazier than fiction. And there were just too many moments where I stopped and thought to myself, this is nuts. Someone should write a book about this. So you went and did it. I love it. It, It's so exciting. And you know, it's so funny. While you were at Teen Vogue, this is like where our lives parallel even more. I remember like that was the time in my life. I was at Seventeen Magazine. I remember my editor telling me at the time, she was like, we are on the cusp of a really interesting time in editorial. And she said something I'll never forget. She was like, our reader is so much smarter than we're letting them on to be. They are so tapped in and we weren't giving them at the time enough credit for it. It even inspired me for like the voice that I eventually had because I was like, this is, it's so important to be able to talk to these people like adults. Like we don't need to dumb anything down. So I think it's so cool, really that specific era that you were at with Teen Vogue when it was that time that like you were really empowering the young girl. No, I mean, I mean, I will always be so grateful for my time at Teen Vogue for the readership that I found and the community that connected with me and my work while I was there. You know, my launch event was a little over two weeks ago, and I was shocked by how many readers who showed up had been following my work for so many years because they'd found it through Teen Vogue. Um, and I think that that, you know, that anecdote, but also sort of the heart of the story gets at the crux of what's so special about being a writer, which is that you're able to create connections and true community with your readers, as long as you sort of remember that you're writing with a purpose and with intention and not necessarily to gain clicks and popularity and make an amount of money. But it was a crazy time in media. And you know what, it's still a crazy time in media. I'm excited to see what will happen in the next, you know, five years to this industry. My God, I'm so it's really cool. It feels very electric. I'm I'm actually kind of energized by it. I'm like, okay, let's see. Let's see what goes down. But I'm curious to know, backtracking a little bit, because you also worked at Bustle in sex and relationships. And so I would love to hear a little bit about what your messaging around sex and sexuality was like growing up. Well, I actually think the reason that I ended up being so fascinated by the female body and sexuality and, um, you know, sexual identity and autonomy is because I didn't feel like I grew up very knowledgeable about my body and my sexuality. And I also didn't feel like I had that much information about female sexuality and female sexual pleasure and, you know, the female body and the way that our sexual organs function, et cetera. And I really think this is a product of how flawed America's sex education system is. And the fact that, you know, last time I checked, 
19 states, and you know, don't quote me on this because I haven't worked in sex and relationships for a few years, require sex education to be medically accurate. It's insane. Not to mention, I grew up in a liberal state and I went to a progressive private school where I received sex ed and still learned, you know, nothing about sexuality. I learned nothing about queer sex. I learned nothing about consent. I learned nothing about sexual pleasure. You know, this is a flaw in the system because it's about who grows up with power and the power to feel ownership over their own bodies and others. And I think the fact that especially straight cis men are raised with a broader understanding of sex, sexuality, and their bodily autonomy, and then grow up sort of communicating and talking about sex with each other in a way that's normalized. Like think about how many jokes you heard about men jacking off as you were growing up and the quote unquote locker room talk and sort of the nudge nudge conversations being passed on from father to son. There's a camaraderie there that leads to an uneven power dynamic between cis straight men and other marginalized people, including women. Women don't have that. Women are siloed. They don't talk to each other about sex. They're taught that they are doing something wrong or inappropriate if they bring up or talk about their sexual urges or their sexuality or their bodies with each other. They have to wait until they get to college or they get access to the internet information to seek out those answers for themselves. And only then can they start to find community where they can talk about sexuality and gender identity and consent, sexual fantasies and pleasure, et cetera. At that point, the power dynamic has been established. Like they're, they're so far beyond men. Like you get, I got to college and they don't know, you know, how to have a conversation about consent. I could talk about this forever because this sort of divide, this uh, dissonance between the two groups, I think is what really inspired me to go into sex and relationships because I was realizing that these marginalized people and young women um, were now turning to online sites like Bustle, like the Elite Daily, like the Google search engine to ask the questions that they felt like they couldn't ask their teachers, their peers, their mothers, their sisters. And I thought, what an opportunity to sort of even that power dynamic by giving, giving them like scientifically accurate, non-judgmental, colloquial, supportive, empowering information. I think that's what's so cool about being a writer and a storyteller and creating community through your words is that you're able to make connections and tell people stories that can actually change their lives, that can lead them to enact real change in their own lives. So that's a long-winded way of saying, no, I didn't grow up with that information. And that's part of the reason I wanted to um, be a part of the change once I became like a working writer and professional. To parallel what you said about like cis boys having this like wink, wink, nudge, nudge from their dad, like they're like there's so much verbalization around it versus for women. It's pretty commonly been kind of like this hush, hush undercurrent. So what were the resources that you went to during this time? Honestly, I was really just inspired by other um, sex writers and sex and relationships uh, columnists. And again, this is a world that I felt very, very much detached from until I uh, went to college. And then honestly, really, when I became a lifestyle staff writer at Bustle is when I started really connecting. I, I think that like a lot of in a lot of ways, I learned through my work. And I think people from my past were almost surprised to hear that this was what I was doing. And the truth is, I do 
think there's a through line? Because again, like I've always been really fascinated by puberty and by adolescence and at the ways that our bodies change. And when I was actually a senior in college, I wrote my honors creative hybrid thesis. It was called Vagina Log, and it documented the nine stages of female puberty. And I, I didn't know it at the time, but I was really planting seeds to continue this exploration into what it meant to be feminine, what it meant to be a woman, and what it meant to uh, be sexually autonomous and sexually empowered versus sexualized. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. And really the bodily autonomy piece, which I think it has such a through line in your book right now with the character of Nura and like her power. And I think it's just this really interesting thing when, you know, a lot of people are like, well, sexuality only plays a role in the bedroom. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. It plays a role in every facet of your life. It's so important. I genuinely, this is like when we get into me being a conspiracy theorist, I genuinely believe that if the sex education system in America were to improve and we were to approach sexuality and gender identity from a more equal lens, I think that it could impact social dynamics, politics, almost like every facet of American societal life. Like, I really believe that. I just think that, again, it comes down to uneven power dynamics and evening out those power dynamics will allow everyone to live more equitably. That's my like, you know, my theory that like, I can't prove because there's no way to do it. But I, that's really what I believe. No, I believe it too. I'm like actually working on a piece right now where I, ca- I keep going back to this notion of like, well, the sex education crisis is of course an education crisis, which comes back to like knowledge being power and this entire thesis around like, well, when we strip knowledge, we're stripping power and that is innately connected to sex. And it's just, it's so wild. And it would be really cool to see a world eventually where it could play out. You know, we'll see. I mean, and let's also think about the ways in which like misogyny has encouraged women to turn on other women and marginalized groups to turn on each other by um, sort of slut shaming and guilting each other into behaving certain ways, whereas men sort of congratulate and dab each other up for behaving in the exact same ways. It creates like a camaraderie between cis straight white men and the other marginalized groups are so busy arguing with each other that they can't come together. And like even that power dynamic, it's just all learned behavior. And it it's so it's makes me sad because I see I see the like road not taken. (laughs) And I know that we've really detoured from the book, but I will say that um, when I sat here, I'll I'll link it back. I will say that when I sat down to write Nora as a character, um, even though she is deeply flawed and like very morally gray at times, I did want to sort of imbue her with these questions. And I wanted her to think of sex as something that um, was exploratory. There was no one right way to have sex. I wanted her to definitely think of sex past penetration and completion, especially male completion or someone with a penis having completion. And I wanted her to be very good at communicating open and honestly, like about her pleasure, desires, et cetera. And a lot of the feedback I've gotten, and I, you know, I know a lot of people that read smut, spicy books. I'm like a big fan of romance. Um, Feedback I've been getting from a lot of people is I've never read a sex scene like that before because it's not necessarily like neat and hot and tidy. It's complicated, but 
sex so often is. And I wanted Nora to be sort of like a roadmap, an example for people for how they can discuss things like that with their partners, even the partners that they've never slept with before. That was probably one of my favorite things about the book was this representation of Nora and like specifically her messiness and her realness. And, you know, I kind of wanted to ask you about the intentionality behind that and sort of like your perspective on these constructs around being messy. You know, I think we've put such a negative connotation around the word and the the idea of it, but I kind of want to hear like why you so intentionally decided to give her that edge. I was actually just talking about this recently um, in another interview. I think that so often when I have read, let's, let's, focus specifically on Middle Eastern protagonists or characters or, you know, brown girls, they are backed into a corner in which their character arc or their, you know, journey as a protagonist is based entirely on sort of like the more aptitudes of race or religion and, you know, dealing with that identity crisis. And it creates like an archetype of what it's like to be a first-generation American or the daughter of immigrants that doesn't allow room for nuance and honestly sort of drains them of any real character because they basically become a symbol, right, for a group suffering. Meanwhile, most of my beloved white straight cis female MCs have always been able to make mistakes and, you know, atone for them and have fights with friends and make up after them and fall in love and get their heart broken and, you know, do all of these quote unquote typical coming of age moments without having to have that be some sort of like totem for a larger cultural group. And what I really wanted to do with Nora was have her, yes, you know, she's Iranian and she is the daughter of immigrants. And, you know, this is all a part of who she is, but it's not all, she, it's not what she is. Like it is not define who she is as a character. She does not dwell on it. And like the story could still happen the way it happens to her without her being, you know, Middle Eastern or Brown, but she is. And that's important. The fact that a character like her can look the way that she does speak the language that she does have the family that she does and still fuck up and make up for it and make mistakes and take chances and have dreams and have those dreams realized and crushed in equal measure. And I really wanted to create a flawed, gray, messy character because those were the ones I loved reading with and connecting with in my youth. Um, But they never looked like me and they never had families like mine. So I'm just trying to sort of make up for that now as a writer. I love that so much. And I think like I love seeing not only like your work being a representation of kind of that more gray area that is life like that is reality like we aren't these like black and white polarized like things like we like we live in this gray so much more which I love that you pointed out and it's been cool to even actually see that play out going back a little bit to our conversation in media a moment ago like and and the shifts that we've seen so much more of where it's like you know, I don't want to see the person like doing it perfectly. I want to see the person being messy and being real and like still thriving, you know? And I do think that's an issue that publishing and, you know, media in general have had in the past few years is there's been a big shift to focus on 
diversity and diverse narratives. But so often those stories end up being exploitative or, you know, reliant on trauma um, or the writer sort of reliving and exploring trauma. Um, and I just didn't want to do that with my book because I think that that that's the real difference between tokenization versus uh, representation is that you don't need to tokenize these characters by giving them marginalized identities. Um, you can really just let them go off and have their own character arcs while also being disabled, while also being a person of color, while also being queer. And um, as Nora sort of figures out what the difference between the two is, I wanted the reader to do the same. And that I think was like one of my favorite parts about kind of going through the book. I felt like I was like tackling all of Nora's circumstances, like alongside her. I felt like really in it. My writing style, which has been very influenced by Meg Cabot, is very colloquial, stream of consciousness. It sort of feels like you're in a group chat with Nora. It feels like you're reading her diary. It feels like you're in her head. And um, that's always been my favorite kind of writing, the type of writing that makes you feel like this MC is actually your best friend or she's your annoying sister. Like she is someone that you hate to love and love to hate. Like she is your person. And I've always been really interested in characters like that because they never pretend to be anything or anyone other than who they are. And oftentimes the reader feels like they know the character better than they know themselves, or they can see things so much more clearly than the narrator can see them. So I really loved writing in that style, um, mostly because I really love reading in that style. So I'm curious to know your advice for people who are like kind of seeking more permission around tapping into their authenticity. I know that's such a broad question, but I think I was so inspired by Nora's character. And I really can't wait for like everybody who's listening to get their hands on this book to kind of like understand it on the level that we're speaking of now. But it's just there's this freedom to it. I think that, you know, my big two pieces of advice, and these are things that I'm always reminding myself of when I get self-conscious. And I think it's very human to feel self-conscious and sort of like hyper aware of yourself. And so don't beat yourself up for feeling that way because everyone does at one point or another. Um, the first is that people are egocentric. They're so often thinking about you and the ways in which you're relative to them. Even when you cross their mind, you will sort of like evaporate as quickly because they're going to go back to thinking of themselves. I know that sounds awful, but like in the end of the day, it's true. And it's not because everyone's selfish and narcissistic. It's because in the end of the day, it's a survival instinct, right? Like we're all just trying to protect our bodies and our hearts. I find that comforting because it means in the end of the day, like if you do something cringe, which is like, let's embrace the cringe. If you take a risk and quote unquote fail, if you decide to give up on a dream, have the strength to walk away from a dream, you'll be thinking about how those actions or decisions are perceived by others. But I guarantee that you are going to spend the most time thinking about them and almost everyone else will go back to thinking about themselves like that. So People are egocentric and I find that freeing. And I think that Nora in the end of the day had to find that freeing too. Loretta James is a narcissist. She isn't thinking about Nora and Nora's character arc or Nora's desires or Nora's goals or dreams. She's thinking about the ways in which Nora relates to her. And that's just a product of who she is. You know, she's not going to change. And it takes Nora a long time to, I think, come to terms with that. My second big piece of advice other than people are egocentric is I like to treat every single day, like you are a new person. You are a new person with new potential, with a clean slate. You can make new decisions. 
you are in a new relationship, every day you should take as an opportunity to check in with yourself and say, am I feeling fulfilled by what I do? Am I in love with where I live? Am I happy with the person I spend my time with? Are there things I want to try that I have not tried? And use every day as an opportunity to start anew. I really believe that the reason that you should do so is because you are a different person than you were yesterday. Every single day, you you know, our, our cells change and divide and we shed our skins and we, are, we become a, a new person. So using that mentality, don't hold yourself accountable to the decisions and the thoughts and the desires of an earlier version of you, whether that's yesterday or 10 years ago. Keep checking in and keep making choices that are right for the version of you that's present. Oh my God, that is insane advice. (laughs) Sorry. And like, no, it's so good. It's so good because I think, like, you said something a moment ago about like being, like, fearing being cringe or like doing something that like makes you literally want to crawl out of your skin and like be like, why did I do that? Like, you know, I think so many actions we hold back on because, like, out of this fear of, being real and like being in that gray area and not quite knowing and you know it's so interesting the way that we have kind of held ourselves back from the gaze of other people like the perception of what other people are going to think of our messy actions that we take but we have to take them to get to where we want to go well I think part of that is that like we live in a society that places a lot of emphasis on perception and Um, you know, very visual oriented society that's constantly, you know, comparing people and image and status and wealth. But ultimately, I think that um, the mistake that we make is that we often discount the fact that at the center of that society, we all place our own ego. So like, ultimately, everyone's constantly weighing their decisions against other people's, not your decisions. So I know that this is like way easier said than done um, because like we've got years and years of shit to unlearn. But in the end of the day, like you might as well live for you because nobody else is going to do it. Everybody else is living for them. And I'm so over like being insecure about being cringe or being basic or being this or that, like do what makes you happy and try to make the best decisions you can today. And if you regret them tomorrow, you can take ownership of that and take accountability. Try to be the best person you can be today. I'm just having such a real moment because I'm just like, I really feel that notion of feeling like you need to tiptoe and be like, am I being chuggy? Am I being like this? Am I being that? Am I like- Am I coming across as aggressive, as assertive, as too hungry, as too thirsty, blah, 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 blah. In the end of the day, like your people are going to love you anyway. Like decisions are going to be made regardless. Like you might as well do what feels right to you. Um, and listen, you know, listen when people come to talk to you as well. I think a part of it is also like, if you're constantly giving, you also have to be receptive. So, you know, open yourself up, but like in the end of the day, check in with yourself, check in with yourself and others. Like, this is my relationship side. This is what I've learned from sex and relationships is that like, Honestly, the answer to every issue, to every problem is like open and honest communication. If you can communicate clearly with yourself and with others, the solution to any problem will present itself to you. Like truly, I believe that. Couldn't agree more. Um, Okay. So my question for you is what made you go from journalism to fiction? Well, I've always been a lover 
of fiction and realistic fiction, specifically YA, I really feel like young adult novels found me at a very vulnerable time and taught me how to be like a person, how to be an American, how to be a teenager. You know, in the back of my mind, this was always something I really wanted to do to give back to a community that gave so much to me. Um, But ultimately, I'm a huge reader. Um, I've always been thinking about the ways in which um, I would tell my story, our story, a story, if given the opportunity. And I think I just got to a point in my life uh, where I was feeling maybe a little bit lost, a little bit constricted, unsure the direction I wanted to take my career in, um, a little bit frustrated that like, no matter what I did, I would never be able to sort of like weigh my own conscious against that of the company I worked for um, and how to sort of like, how to deal with the fact that sometimes companies don't always practice what they preach to their readers. Um, And it was just so nice at that time to be able to go home each day and work on something that creatively was 100% mine that was my own project was my own brainchild was my own baby and it felt really really empowering to know that I could create a world I could write like a universe into existence um, and get lost there for a little while so I think that that's why fiction found me when it did do you feel like it's transformed kind of like your own perspective of your coming of age? Was there anything that you like really intentionally wanted to add in or like a narrative that you were like, I'm so passionate to bring this to the forefront? Yeah, I I mean, I really wanted to discuss dream jobs and this idea that um, you can put all of your time, energy, resources into a dream and then have to confront the reality. I really wanted to talk about the fact that you are not what you do, that people are not replaceable, even if they can find someone who can do your job, that person will not be you and you are not your JD and you are inherently valuable because of who you are as a person, not because of the tasks you complete during the day. Um, I think that these are all really important lessons for anyone who's ever worked entry level anywhere across any industry. And I wanted that to be a real through line for Nora to learn because I want the reader to take that away. You know, there's no job worth sacrificing your mental, physical health and integrity for, you know, if you're feeling burnt out, if you're working 24 seven, if you're barely getting paid, you know, you don't have to stay somewhere because you feel like you're just lucky to be there. If that instruction, like you always can remove yourself from a toxic situation. So that was a real coming of age in your twenties story that I wanted to tell, um, in a hundred other girls. Um, and besides that, I really wanted to sort of weave small snippets of myself into the book and my, um, my family's experience. Um, I loved having the opportunity to talk about being caught between, you know, two different worlds, feeling like you're neither here nor there. Um, I loved the opportunity to be able to talk about, conformity and passing and hair removal and, you know, colorism and to really like delve into these topics in a way that didn't necessarily feel like they were plot devices or exploitative, but I'm just small pieces of like a larger tableau of who Nora is. And so that you can understand how feeling these ways throughout her life 
are informing the decision she makes because she wants to be successful. She wants to be accepted. She wants to be loved. She wants to be, you know, she wants so badly to please the people that she works with, even when they treat her poorly. Gosh, I could really talk to you so much more, but you know, as we're wrapping things up here, I would love to ask you, what is currently on your bedside table? I love that question. Thank you so much for asking me. I just finished tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, Gabrielle Zevin, and it is so good. I really did not um, fully understand what I was getting into when I sat down to write it. I knew it was about the gaming world and gaming community, but I thought it was a love story and it was so much more poignant than that. Okay. What do we have here? Besides, I have maybe like 12 books. I have AirPods, Vaseline, an old iPhone that cracked down the middle, um, and a hundred other girls custom bookmark that my friend Bella got me for my birthday. And it's all I read with now. Deep sleep pillow spray, lavender, a pair of socks in case I get cold, and Advil, Tums, <laughs> and evening primrose oil. And that's everything I have on my bedside table. I love it. I'm obsessed. <laughs> Thanks for walking me over. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wanted to give you an accurate answer. I could have made it a lot cuter than that. But there you have it, folks. <laughs> there you have it, everybody. Um, Aman, what do we have to expect from you? I know, I think it's today the audiobook came out. Am I right? Today the audiobook came out. Um, I have not listened yet. I had the pleasure of casting the voice actress who plays Nora and she's incredible. Um, but I'm really looking forward to listening to the book all the way through. It's going to be such a crazy experience for me, but I can't speak too much about my upcoming projects, but know that I've got a lot of exciting announcements in the pipeline. So if I were you, I would follow me on Instagram, on TikTok, add me on Goodreads and subscribe to my newsletter because that's where I've been making a lot of my announcements. So keep an eye out. So exciting. We'll link all of those links in the show notes below. But guys, be sure to go get your copy of 100 Other Girls. Go listen to the audiobook if that's how you take in your stories. But I'm just so happy to have had you on to chat about your process and your coming of age. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been fantastic. Um, I really appreciate it. Bye, guys. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to this week's episode. If you loved it, I would be so thrilled to have you rate and review this show. If you're on Spotify, all it takes is a quick like. I think you can just hit the star to rate the show. And if you're on Apple, just scroll down to the bottom of the bedside page and feel so inclined to leave us a review and a rating. I would so appreciate it and it really helps us get our show and this amazing message of good sex out into the world. With that said, let's get right into our sex Q&A for the day. Someone wrote in and said, SOS, the guy I like and have been crushing on for years turns out to be a terrible kisser. We had our first makeout sesh and I was so thrown off guard by how bad of a kisser he was. I asked mutual friends and apparently 
this is something he's known for. He's really attractive and in his mid-20s, and I don't know if A, it's a lost cause by now, or B, if I have the energy to teach him. Any advice? All right, I loved this question. So first, I was doing a little bit of research, and I found some interesting statistics here. So 59% of men and 66% of women say that they've rethought their attraction to someone based on if they were a good or bad kisser, which is such interesting insights. And I feel like I could have leaned toward that idea on my own, but it was so interesting to see the statistics here. I actually thought it would be even higher. I thought more people would be repulsed by the idea of someone being a bad kisser, but I have some thoughts around the matter. So let's get right into it. I am not sure that it's necessarily a lost cause. Like you said, I think there's two ways to consider this. You mentioned that this is the first time that you've ever made out with one another. And I always like to give someone the benefit of the doubt, especially if you've never been together before. And this applies to sex as well. It just takes time to figure out somebody else's rhythm, their body, their cadence, you name it. So when things feel rusty at first, I don't think that we should just write people off completely. That said, I would start by slowing down your approach with this individual. So the next time that you're with them, I would just slow everything down. If you, when you do get to kissing, slow it down. If you think you never, you didn't describe what their kissing was like, but if they're like jamming their tongue down your throat or just going into it really fast or if it's really teethy, I think it comes down to just communicating that you want to slow it down. And you don't necessarily need to verbalize it per se, though you could, but I think you can just show rather than tell in this situation. I think there's also a lot of different types of ways that you can kiss. You know, there's neck kissing, there's really passionate kissing, there's really intense kissing or like tender kissing. There's so many different categories. So I think you can explore that a little bit more and see if there's any sort of change in a different style of kissing with this person. Maybe they're just not that great at passionately kissing, but they're like good at more sentimental kissing and neck kissing. So I would explore that territory a bit more. And then I would also evaluate on your own just how important kissing is to you in terms of your chemistry and in terms of what it means in a relationship dynamic because if you're like eh, kissing is actually not so important like I'm into it but it's not the end-all be-all there's a chance that you could just work with it and see how it evolves but if it's really striking a red flag for you in terms of your values or the needs that you require to have met. I think after a certain time, if you feel like nothing's changed, then that could be grounds for reevaluation. I also want to get to your point saying that you're not sure if you have the energy 
to teach him, which definitely makes sense. But I think it's a bit of a tell-all, right? Because when we're really interested in someone or a situation or a circumstance, this is even outside of kissing, right? Like when we are deeply attracted to something, we have the energy to pursue it, even if it's complicated or hard or has roadblocks around it. So I Right from the get-go, you telling me that you're not quite sure you have the energy to go for it kind of tells me your stance. It's giving me insight into maybe how attracted you are to this person or the lack of chemistry you now feel based off of kissing. And I think it's also telling me that maybe you do find kissing to be really important in your dynamic with someone romantically. So I think you have a lot to consider. I don't think it's a lost cause per se. I always love to give people benefit of the doubt and I really think there's a learning curve with everybody when you are newly becoming intimate with one another but if it's draining you and just feels like it's in an energetic zap then cut your ties and explore some new options. All right I hope that helps. Let me know. Keep us posted. And with that said, I hope you have a great rest of your week. I hope you loved this interview and I will catch you guys next. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at the bedside and thebedside.co online. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening.